Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Well, not quite, Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody. This is Vern Blazek of the Vern Blazek Science Power Hour. Uh, filling in today for Kevin Fulta. Now, Kevin, he's okay. Uh, taking a little needed me time. Uh, he's uh, just uh, cooling down from what has been several weeks, which have been quite challenging. Lots of travel, and certainly those of you who read Natural News know that the climate for this science communicator has been less than favorable. So today I'll be hosting at least the beginning of the podcast. The first part of the podcast, Kevin sits down with Richard Levine. Richard Levine is from the Entomological Society of America, that's bugs and things, and talks a little bit about the uh, effects of biotechnology and agriculture on all of the critters that grace our plants. The second part of today's podcast is a mishmash, a jumble, if you will. First, we'll talk about a new initiative, which allows artists to potentially be able to use talking biotech as a vehicle for their work. Finally, we'll wrap up by talking about the $10 bill. There's an effort afoot to place Dr. Barbara McClintock, Nobel Laureate, on the $10 bill. We will talk to the person driving this effort so that you too may participate in promoting this idea of placing this exceptional female scientist onto our currency. So now we'll listen to a conversation between Kevin Fulta and Richard Levine from the Entomological Society of America. I'm uh, talking into my phone uh, at the First Magnitude Brewery in Gainesville, Florida, and uh, I'm here because we have a special guest for Talking Biotech. Uh, today's guest is uh, Richard Levine. Richard is Communications Program Manager uh, for the Entomological Society of America, and uh, 
it's uh, very fortunate to have him in town. Um, lots of overlap with some friends and acquaintances through the year, years. And um, I wanted to get his ideas on some of his functions and communication about science and science about insects and entomological issues. should note that all of his views today do not represent necessarily those of the Entomological Society of America. Um, they've been forming position statements, and you can read their views there. Uh, these are his personal thoughts and some of his ideas on issues relevant to agriculture and some things tangentially to biotechnology. So, welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, I guess uh, a good place to start out, could you tell us a little bit about your background in this area and how you got into the communications area around um, insects and maybe even some of the stuff with the biotech? Uh, sure. Well, um I started uh, at ESA around 2006. Um, before that, I, I did some uh, private consulting um, on ag issues and communications, and I uh, worked with some plant breeders, some in industry, but also some nonprofits and academics. And um, my my background is not necessarily in science. Uh, I got a, a bachelor's degree in English from the University of Maryland, and a master's in American Studies. But um, I kind of ended up in, working with some plant breeders. I was fortunate enough to meet Norman Borlaug, uh, which is really kind of amazing, the father of the Green Revolution, man who is credited with saving a billion lives, billion with a B. Uh, I got to meet Patrick Moore, um, one of the founders of Greenpeace, who's kind of left them. And from talking to some of these people, um, really got, uh, gave me some perspective on biotech and on some of the issues and the controversies. Yeah, I think they, they call me the uh, um, unwanted orphan of the Green Revolution. So if Norman Borlaug's the father, I'm uh, in there. it's nice to be in there somewhere. Um, I, I guess uh, maybe some of the things we should talk about first. So what, do you know, what have you noticed in terms of trends around the idea of the way science is communicated and what scientists are doing maybe a little differently now than they have in the past? Or are our societies thinking about in terms of ways to get scientists to communicate better? Well, I guess the social media has opened up a lot, um, especially, obviously, with the younger people. They, they seem to be born with mouse pads in their hands these days, um, so they've taken to it more. I see a lot of grad students that are kind of doing some amazing things. They also seem to have the, the freedom. They're not tied down by their institution, and they can kind of say what they want and um, be a little controversial at times. That's pretty interesting. But um, I see some others, um, even famous entomologists on Twitter and that sort of thing. Uh, it's really interesting. So what about some of the areas that you find are most important to be communicating from the entomological side? We talk all the time about issues like, uh, let's say, colony collapse or pollinator health, um, issues with um, other issues with insects and agriculture, the monarch butterfly stuff. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you think about any one of those issues and maybe some of the ways it's either correctly or incorrectly portrayed in the media? Well, I'll start out by saying, uh, before addressing any of the issues, we used to kind of joke that half of the entomologists, half of our members are out to preserve the insects. They're taxonomists and the systematic <laughs> people who work in museums and stuff, and the other half are out to kill them. They're the ones who are trying to stop malaria. They're the ones who are um, trying to protect crops. But one thing they all agree on is something called integrated pest management. They all agree that uh, we don't need to be spraying out um, broad-spectrum pesticides, pesticides in other words that kill lots of different insects, and 
Um, biotech, for example, fits into that, and also some of the more specialized pesticides, um, including the the, the neonicotinoids. Um, yeah, they're somewhat controversial for many different ways, um, but I think a lot of people would agree that um, that it's better to use the ones that are systemic. In other words, they get taken up into the plant than having a crop duster come out and spray the whole field, which is going to kill your beneficial insects, your praying mantises, your your lace wings, that sort of thing. Um, same thing with BT, um, with the um, the corn and some other plants that are protected um, because they have a protein that the organic farmers have been using forever. So they basically found um, the bacterium. They found a gene in a bacterium that produces this protein. They made the plant produce it. So the only uh, insects that will die are the ones that bite the plant. Bumblebees don't bite plants. Honeybees don't bite plants. So they're not. So they're protected. So that's something everyone kind of agrees on. Um, what was the last? Oh, the monarch butterfly. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, that's an interesting one. Um, back in 1999, there was controversy saying again this uh, this BT uh, corn was affecting them. That's pretty much been debunked. Today, it's more about herbicides than it is about uh, insecticides. Um, simply that our, the herbicide tolerant crops are just so incredibly successful that um, there are fewer weeds in the fields. If you're a farmer, that's a great thing. You're paid to grow soybeans, not weeds. Um, so there may be something to that. Um, yeah, I've heard that discussion, and it really does seem to make some sense that as you expand your um, farmland and your acreage under under herbicide-resistant crops, and it doesn't matter whether you're using herbicide-resistant crops or tilling, expanded farmland for these kinds for anything is going to remove those weeds. And whether you're an organic farmer who's having a team of migrant workers removing them, or uh, a plow, or an, an herbicide. Really, the culprit, I think, in a way that it's been described to me by experts like Randy Oliver and others who I see, saw at a meeting recently, I thought he was wonderful. He uh, said that it's more about the expanding acreage and losing the diversity around things like fence lines and, and other areas. Um, you know what? It was really interesting when you were talking. Do you know, and maybe you do it, maybe you don't, I always wondered about the first organic farmer who said, maybe if we put bacteria on the plant, <laughs> it'll, it'll kill these, or, you know, let's try this one. And how many different kinds of bacteria he had to use, or she, uh, but it's a very unusual thought. Like, how do you learn that that works? Uh, do you know anything about that? No, I don't. I'm guessing it must have been some, like a kind of a random discovery. But then, and then remember, so those organic farmers were using the BT. It was in powder form. So an even better question, how, how did they go from finding the bacterium to then manufacturing the powder that they could spray? Yeah, it, it probably, yeah, it, it probably has something to do with uh, the drug trade or uh, <laughs> cutting uh, illegal substances with bacterial powders. <laughs> and I, I don't know. Uh, beer's good, isn't it? <laughs> it is good. Okay. Yeah. You were talking about um, um, increased acreage to crops. Um, that That's probably a big problem, too. And um, I don't know if, again, as you said before, uh, these are my opinions, my opinions only, not that of my employer, etc., etc. But I think um, some of the biofuels, actually, the ethanol, um, see, from what I've heard, it seems like um, a lot of land that may have not been in production is under production now, and that's killing, um, well, 
it's taking away some natural habitat. Remember, it, it, so the, the monarchs only feed on milkweed, of course. That's the, that's the larvae. Now, the adults, that's not true for adults. The adults will f- feed on nectar and lots of others. One, one famous entomologist, she, she mentions like how a, someone's backyard where it doesn't have any dandelions, it's like a food desert. Well, it could, it's kind of the same thing. If you're taking, if you're taking some of these um, land that was on a farm that wasn't in production, it had all kinds of different biodiversity, it had lots of different flowers, um, giving, giving the insects a varied diet. Now all of a sudden it's monoculture. Um, I think that may have something to do Again, with the monarchs, yeah, or, or the uh, trans, or the uh, transition of pasture land into um, into fields with uh, with these kinds of high density crops. Yeah, I've, I've heard the same kind of argument before. So the, before. Before there was clover, and now there's soybean. Yeah. for example, that could be. And and it's the issue that soybeans and other crops are flowering for such a finite window that you don't have sources of pollen and nectar even in those kinds of crops which are rather limited in those uh, in the presentation of those particular products for insects. So, so what about things like uh, you mentioned um, the neonics and and neonics? It's hard to get a really good handle on this because they've been a very effective alternative to a lot of broad-spectrum um, products. But what do we know about places where neonics are used and where places they're not used and their relative effects on the uh, insects of the area? Well, from what I understand, let's, let's back up a little bit. Because neonics, um, remember, the, you can use them as systemic insecticides where they're actually taken up by the plant. In other words, in other words you take a, a, a corn or a soybean seed, you actually dip it into the plant, sorry, into the liquid the liquid pesticide, then you plant it and it actually has um, a very small amount of that pesticide in the plant. Well that's used for agriculture, but remember neonics are also used for many other different things. You can go to Home Depot and you can buy them. You can spray them on your roses or whatever. And we should also remember that they're not all created equally. Some are very persistent, for example, um, some are not, well some are less persistent. Some are very broad spectrum and some are less so. so you know, they all belong to the same chemical class, but they're not created equally. Now, to answer your question, um, from what I've read, it seems that places like Australia, they use a whole lot of them. They use on um, on different crops. In, in um, Canada, for example, canola. They use a lot of them systemically, um, and they don't. They didn't seem to have the the honeybee problems that we had. Australia, I heard was I heard a similar situation. If from what I'm seeing, it's, um, in the U.S. well, a, a USDA report has said that they think that the varroa mite is probably the biggest problem for the honeybee. They're like little tiny vampire mites. It's almost like how we have ticks on us. These are like these little tiny mites on the honeybees, and they suck the hemolymph. That's kind of bee blood. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is they spread pathogens. They spread viruses and maybe, maybe some other things. It seems that the places that don't have the varroa mites are having fewer problems. It's also worth pointing out that, um, remember, the honeybees, everybody tends to think of them as managed honeybees. In other, ones, in other words, the ones that the beekeepers are keeping. But there's also feral ones, wild ones, living out in hollow trees and stuff like that. And they don't seem to be affected to, um, as far as I know. Um, again, I'm not an expert, but I, this is kind of what I think from what I've read. 
Yeah, that's consistent with what people uh, who are experts have talked about. And I, once again, I point to Randy Oliver, who runs the website scientificbeekeeping.com. And Randy has been um, a real expert out in front of this, uh, discussing, uh, and, and, and he's a wonderful environmentally friendly uh, a guy who cares so much about the environment that he's around. You can tell that from the guy. Just a wonderful guy. Uh, met him at a meeting at Davis last year. And it was just wonderful to hear him talk about how the uh, how GM crops are a favorable thing for bees because of the fact that you don't need a broad-spectrum insecticide. Right. But what about, um, what about the discussion that you see a lot about glyphosate? So the herbicide in affecting bees, what what do you make of that? And is there any real evidence to show that connection? I don't know much about that, but I have seen other... I, there have been some studies that's, that say, uh, for example, fungicides are hurting bees. There's There's, there's been some that say, um, you know, pollution from tailpipes. There's um, I've seen some with, um, oh boy, d- different elements. I can't even remember now. It, it seems to be a lot... A lot of different factors. I don't know if I've heard the one about glyphosate, but I have heard something about uh, fungicides. You would suspect the insecticides, but others, other chemicals may also have an effect. Well, that's, I think that's been one of the central syntheses of people who are the real experts, as they say, this is not a one-component problem. This is a multifactorial problem that's principally caused by mites, uh, spreading disease and causing problems in the in the in the uh, hives, yet the mite has an ad, uh, an advantage because of a weakening of hives due to other factors, and these may include dot dot dot. And um, I know that a lot of people have been pushing glyphosate because it's kind of the whipping chemical of the world right now. Um, I don't know how that would affect, and I can't point to a study that shows it does. Um, we do know that they, uh, you know, that BT pollen that they've jammed bees full of BT and they don't do anything funny. Yeah, that that reminded me of something else about about the neonics used as systemics. So there was a an entomologist from either Mississippi or Arkansas, and he tested the pollen of some of I believe it's corn and soybean and canola to see how much neonics were actually in the pollen and the nectar and he found it was practically neg- negligible he, he found it was just a, a few parts per billion and to put that in perspective one part per billion is one second in 16 years so the parts where the where the bees would actually be the flowers where they're getting nectar um, he, according to him and some colleagues the insecticide really isn't there in, in, in the large enough dose to hurt them so if I'm hearing you right, every 16 years, for a very brief time, all the bees are screwed. <laughs> you did not hear me right. So the other big question then, tying in with what we were just speaking about, would be this idea of colony collapse disorder. And a lot of people find this um, really compelling. Other people say it doesn't exist or it did at one time. Where do you land on this particular issue? All right, that's a really good question. Um, so I first became aware of it back in, say, 2006. And basically what was happening was um, it wasn't just a beehive or a colony dying. It was that it was, there were no adults. They would find bee larvae and pupae, um, but all the adults were gone. And that was different. And that's what sets it apart from, um, from just you know, a hive dying. Um, I heard 
I heard one person. I'm gonna. I'm stealing this from. Um, I believe it's Joe Ballinger, who was one of our student members. Uh, he said it's like it's like blaming. It's like saying that every car crash fatality is caused by drunk driving. It's not. So this phenomenon where you'd go to a hive and you'd see all the adults gone. I'm told that hasn't happened for many, many years. Dennis Van Engelsdorp, for example, from uh, University of Maryland, a, a, an expert on this, has said that they haven't really seen that. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to discount honeybee problems, but I think it's pro- it seems like it's time to stop using the term colony collapse disorder. I think a lot of it got ad- attributed to um, so a spate of disorders that were occurring back in the early 2000s where, I, I forget what they call this, but it's a kind of self-sacrifice that bees will do. Yeah. And uh, it's a behavior that is triggered where uh, they all leave the hive because uh, once you throw yourself under the bus, other bees can do. I think it's called um, something altruistic behavior, uh, but but it's a it's a it's a bee behavior. Bees are so cool, yeah. And and they do this, and it doesn't necessarily serve themselves, but it serves the hive. And that this was um, a behavior that seemed to be increasing in 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 um, frequency. Yeah, Den- again, Dennis Van Engelsdorp kind of mentioned that to me, uh, I don't know, about a half a year ago. It's kind of like, uh, like all of a sudden if you got Ebola, you might jump in a boat and go out to sea and take one for the team rather than risk spreading it to your family and your friends and everything. Uh, you don't know me very well. <laughs> all right, I'm making assumptions here. Um, so, so, yeah, that could be. And, and, and in fact, um, so bee die-offs have, have gone on They've been documented for hundreds of years, actually. Um, Gene Kritsky, who's the editor of American Entomologist, wrote a book on that. Oh, well, he wrote a book on, on beekeeping, actually. He actually went to, to Egypt, and he learned how to read hieroglyphics. And he started looking at um, beekeeping, hier- well, the hieroglyphics about beekeeping from way back then. And anyway, um, in his book, he mentions that at least 200 years ago, there were these massive bee die-offs. It happens every, you know, every few decades. And then... Um, you know, just that. Well, that's how evolution works, right? The the resistant individuals survive. Um, the ones who are susceptible die, and um, then you have uh, then, then the whatever the culprit was, whether it's a virus or a disease, it's it's not hurting the population anymore. The thing that really is interesting to me about this is that bees are not native, at least honeybees, are not native species. Yeah. And here you have a, a species that's from somewhere else integrating with an uh, ecosystem of North America. And then on top of that, an agricultural and an urbanized uh, um, landscape, which now must really throw a monkey wrench into this. Because not only are these bees coming over here and going, okay, I don't know where the hell I am. This doesn't make any sense. These are all different flowers than what Grandpa talked about. And uh, now you're, you know, running into uh, cities and uh, and monoculture crops. You know, and I hate I say monoculture, you know, lovingly. Um, the the current state of plants that a, that tend to have a very a more narrow germplasm base, at least in a region. And uh, and so there are challenges for bees going into this. And uh, and so do you know of any efforts that are underway to help pollinators, uh, whether they're bees, moths, or anything, like efforts that are underway to increase their numbers and their survivability? Yeah. Well, first, let's, first, uh, let's back up a little bit. That's really interesting what you, what you said. Because um, I don't know how many people know this, but bees are livestock for, for the beef keepers, just like, just like cows or pigs or chicken. That's absolutely right. They're taken from European settlers to here um, in the early 1600s. 
Before that, they didn't exist. Um, I'm told by um, kind of a great entomologist and also funny man and kind of historian that they, uh, the, the Native Americans used to call them the white man's flies because they could see, when they started seeing honeybees moving west, they knew that the white man was coming, the European settlers. That's what makes the honeybee so interesting is that you can actually pick up a hive and move it. So it's a tool. You know, in the past, beekeepers made money from honey. Now they make it from pollination. So you're a beekeeper in Ohio, and you have, I don't know, let's just say 300 hives or whatever. Um, some, some guy or, or gal, a couple hundred miles away, has an apple orchard. And those flowers are only going to be there for two weeks or so. Well, they need, they need bees there to pollinate them. So they hire you. They pay you per hive. You, you load all your bees up onto a truck, and you bring them out there. You pollinate for two weeks or so. Then what do you do? You load them back up, and maybe you, try, you travel down to Indiana. You do the same thing for some kind of orchard there. And then the, the, some, sometimes these bees are getting shipped literally thousands of miles. What are they eating during that time? We talked about the varied diet before. Well, for, they're going from, you know, kind of one, again, but I'm not using the word monoculture like it's an evil term. Um, but, you know, the, so the, at one point they're, they're getting nothing but apples. Maybe the next week nothing but peaches and that sort of thing. And not to mention just the stress. And that's another thing that the colony collapses, well, back when they were using that term. Um, stress was a big thing. Again, because backyard beekeepers, the ones who weren't shipping their, their bees a lot, weren't getting it to the same extent. They, so you asked about some efforts to help them. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting that I've heard that everybody seems to kind of agree on is to just stop mowing the grass in between the highway, uh, the, the median. Um, then there's more, there's more flowers growing, there's more for the bees to forage. Um, who's got a problem with that? Um, I did find, a, uh, I did hear a, one surprising theory that there are some kind of make work jobs you could call them. It makes the mediums look good, but it's also put, putting unemployed people to work to cut the, cut the grass. So some people might think that's a good thing, but um, from the bees' perspective, uh, it's, it's best to not mow and give them more uh, of a variety, a varied diet. And I think that's the way we're going. You know, as uh, as we have municipality collapse disorder for, because of budgetary constraints, uh, we may see more emphasis in letting natural areas grow wild. I know my yard is a great example. Um, it's an outstanding bee habitat because uh, I don't do anything with it, and my homeowners association hates me, but the bees are pretty happy. There's been there's been some efforts to get people to to grow milkweed in their backyards and that sort of thing. You do have to be careful that it's the correct milkweed. Some could actually be harmful. Some studies have suggested. So it's it's probably best to, if you're going to buy a bill or or actually some some organizations will give it to you for free. But do your research and make sure you're getting what's right for your region. Uh, and very important. And also because you don't want to introduce something that's potentially invasive as a, uh, now you've introduced a new uh, plant pest to your area to help. Uh, it's called a weed for a reason, milkweed. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not called milk plant <laughs> or milk tree. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Queen bee, is this a, uh, uh, a female bee or a dude bee in drag? In every case that I've heard of, it's a queen bee, a female. Okay. In fact, um, so almost all the almost all the bees in a hive are female. There are very few males. They're called drones, and they're 
their duty is basically to mate with the queen at one point, and then they don't live very long after that. But almost almost every bee you've ever seen has been a female. Yeah, welcome to my world. Um, so, all right, well, really great. It's really nice to sit with you and talk about this particular topic. I really appreciate your time on this. And sure, if people want to find you in social media, where's the best place for them to do that? The easiest thing is just go to our website, and all the links are there. It is www. Entsoc America, like Entomology Society, so it's entsoc.org. Um, scroll down to the bottom of any old page, you'll see links for Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, all that stuff. Yeah, that's uh, our time with Richard Levine here at the First Magnitude Brewery in Gainesville, Florida. My glass is empty, and we're going to end the interview here. What can you do to help spread science through talking biotech? Our goal is to advance discovery to application with communication, ensuring the best technology reaches farmers, consumers, the environment, and the needy. Talking Biotech Podcast is 100% funded by the Kevin Folta Family Vacation Budget, and no contributions or advertisers will be solicited or accepted. can do is kindly take a few minutes and write a short review of this podcast on iTunes, tell a friend, or scratch TalkingBiotechPodcast.com into a bathroom stall at Chipotle. If you have any questions, send them to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com or through Twitter at TalkingBiotech. A podcast dedicated to these important issues is long overdue. Your assistance can help others find helpful information, will accelerate research, and bring innovative solutions to those that need them. And welcome back to Talking Biotech and kind of an interesting concept that I'd like to roll out here today. So a few weeks ago, I was approached, well, actually, since the beginning of this podcast, now 17 weeks ago, people have asked where they can get swag. Yeah, people like stuff, t-shirts, cups, all that kind of stuff, but not really um, into that idea of merchandising this podcast. And I kind of like to stay a little bit clear of monetizing, even though it'd be tremendously helpful. Um, We've all seen the uh, effects of of, uh, even hints of some sort of strange financial collusion between uh, innocent podcasting scientists and uh, others in the field. So I'm going to steer clear of that opportunity. However, it still would be a very nice way to promote the podcast. And I've been contacted by um, a number of artists, well, two, two's a number, um, contacted by two artists who said, well, I would love to make t-shirts and stuff, or at least do the artwork, and um, would that be okay? And so if you look on the website with today's uh, podcast. Some of the artwork is shown there. And so what the idea is, and this is the, win, the win-win situation, kind of that area between art and science is a really important one. And if we could get people excited about promoting their um, artwork and maybe taking part in science, it could be very helpful. So what I'm suggesting to do is if you're an artist or if you know an artist and you want to generate talking biotech artwork, Um, Let's promote it through this site. And what I'll do is I'll be able to set up some sort of cafe press or whatever link where people who are interested in finding shirts and coffee mugs or mouse pads or whatever, where you could get that stuff. Um, No dollars would flow backwards towards us. We would do it at cost. 
and this would allow you to promote your work and promote the podcast. So this is a real win-win situation and uh, a case where dollars would never have to exchange hands. So that makes the accounting easy because there is none, and I can be as transparent as people want and show I receive, as usual, absolutely nothing. So uh, contact me at talkingbiotech at gmail.com if you'd like to participate. So in this part of Talking Biotech, we have an opportunity to really do something that raises the awareness of science. And every time we can do that, that's a good thing. And on the line with us today, we have Don Gibson calling from Reno, Nevada. Um, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us today, Don. Thank you, Kevin. Happy to be here. So tell us about your initiative, which I, I learned about um, back in, I guess, at ASPB in, uh, in July. But tell us about this initiative that you've started and why it's so important. Well, great. Um, so um, back about three months ago, uh, the U.S. Treasury announced that they're going to put a woman on the new $10 bill, and they were seeking public feedback and input. And I was initially inspired to do this project uh, back in uh, February, when I saw a public talk by Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, he gave uh, a beautiful lecture showing how many different countries recognize science on their currency. You know, an old German Deutschmark having a Gaussian bell curve, and many other countries, even in Canada, who has a woman with a microscope and their contribution to the International Space Station. And then he contrasted it with American currency, where we don't recognize one of America's great achievements, which is science and technology. And so when I found out that there was going to be opportunity to have public input to put a woman on a $10 bill, I thought, why not have a scientist on this bill? Why not have arguably one of the greatest American scientists, Barbara McClintock, be that woman? And so we launched this campaign uh, just over two months ago right now to advocate for Barbara McClintock to be the woman selected. And we've got some really great buzz over social media. We've um, and had the opportunity to uh, spark thousands of people to share their input on that Barbara McClintock is not only a great American scientist, but it would be an opportunity to recognize science on our currency. Well, that's really, it's an exciting idea because right now, if you go through all the currency, and I, I don't, I'm no expert on this stuff because I've only seen up to like 50. And so I'm not not quite sure who's on those other ones. But uh, well, Benjamin Franklin is on the 100, and he wasn't a president. But in general, they're all presidents or something, right? That's a very legitimate concern. There was a very big social media project um, uh, started about a year ago to advocate for a woman to be on the $20 bill to replace Jackson because he's a bit more controversial of one of our presidents, to say the least. And I'm very sympathetic with the idea to put a woman on the 20 instead of the 10, but... They announced between the 10, so that's what we're going with. Yeah, that works. I, I guess the one I'd like to see replaced would be the 50, because Ulysses S. Grant, really, if you study the presidents, had one of the more corrupt administrations of all of them. So we really should start thinking about this a little bit broader, and, and widening this to women and widening this to science would be a fantastic idea. So some of the largest problems we have with uh women in science, and it's not so much in maybe plant biology, but in other disciplines, is that there does appear to be still a very strong discrimination that happens in the hiring of women into science positions. And what what kind of obstacles did uh, Dr. McClintock face back in her time? Uh, you know, uh, for a woman to enter science in her time was actually relatively difficult. 
Um, she entered Cornell in uh, 1920 despite her fears that it would make her unmarriageable by her mother. Um, and she ended up getting her PhD at Cornell, but she, but she wanted to study genetics, which was taught by their plant breeding program. However, at the time, the plant breeding program didn't allow women in the mid-1920s. So she ended up being self-taught, and with some of her management, she actually had to end up in the botany program at Cornell. And this ended up being kind of a theme uh, for the early years of her career. Um, after she made some big strides, one big thing she discovered was the ability of crossing over, where chromosomes exchange parts uh, with each other of their sister chromosomes. And after having this discovery, she sought to have a permanent faculty position. However, they didn't, at Cornell at the time, want a woman there to be that. And she was forced to postdoc around for a couple years after already making a big name for herself. And then she ended up at the University of Missouri. And at the University of Missouri, she faced a big culture class. She was an, you know, a middle-class woman, very independent. Um, she didn't really care about wearing you know, the clothes that women were supposed to wear at the time. Um, and when she was at Missouri, while continuing to make great strides in the field, uh, she had a bit of a culture clash. Uh, when the dean of her department found out that a Barbara McClintock was getting married after reading this in the newspaper, he called her in. And it turns out it was a different Barbara McClintock getting married in the town. And Barbara McClintock was mad and upset, like, why would you accuse me of this and why would this be a problem? And then she asked, well, um, if I ever get, uh, if I ever have the opportunity for promotion, would you allow it? And the dean said, no, we probably wouldn't promote you. And uh, if your mentor leaves, we'd probably fire you. And uh, this is kind of a lot of story where she faced a lot of trouble there. And what her response was, she left the University of Missouri immediately. And she ended up at Cold Springs Harbor, where they had a lot more accepting view of her and allowed her to be more accepting of kind of more of the scientific normal cultures where it can be very casual and interactive and while people work hard. And um, it wasn't until the 1950s when a lot of her work started to really perk up and people began recognizing her. Um, and, by she, and she was not a person that uh, ever wanted to be someone famous known for breaking gender barriers, but when she was elected to become the first president of the Genetic Society of America, she actually um, understood um, what it meant to break these gender barriers. And um, I actually have a quote from her um, on what her thoughts was. And uh, what she said was, it was awful because of the responsibility of women. I couldn't let them down. Jews, women, and Negroes are all accustomed to discrimination and don't expect much. I'm not a feminist, but I'm always gratified when illogical barriers are broken for Jews, women, Negroes, etc. It helps all of us. And I think that's really explains uh, her feelings at the time, knowing that she was one of the women breaking into a field that didn't accept women readily at the time. And she didn't want to be a standard bearer, but she knew that someone has to be the first, and she was accepting that she was. So what, what, how realistic is it that this might happen? Uh, you know, I'll be frank, the odds are kind of long. Um, the U.S. Treasury has mentioned that uh, when great women like Harriet Tubman and Eleanor Roosevelt uh, are some of the front runners. Um, however, that being said, is that we wanted to make sure that America's achievements in the world um, are recognized beyond just our political and civic accomplishments. 
Um, those women made awesome achievements for our country, um, but also women of science have made huge strides. And this is an opportunity to highlight uh, the accomplishments of science and the great women of science. And to think about when you look at your currency, um, is try to talk about what your nas national values are. And, you know, we've had one theme, um, presidents and Benjamin Franklin. And so if we wanted to think about another theme to hopefully inspire people to be passionate about science and care more about um, having themes of great American discoveries would be on there. And, and on, frankly, I think genetics is one of the perfect fields um, to highlight in America. Um, it's kind of like a lot of other great American accomplishments, like pizza and Chinese food. It started somewhere else, but we really made it our own and made it big. Um, you know, it was originally started with Gregor Mendel and his peas, but, you know, a lot of that information was lost. Um, but the work in the, from, like, 1900 to about the 1950s was really led by many, many Americans. And even today, we lead in the field of genetics and genomics. So it's a field that I feel Americans really helped create and has a lot of benefits for our world. Well, especially for the idea of encouraging young women to participate in science, uh, having some women role models, which I think, you know, among all of the sciences, I think biology and especially plant biology has so many examples of outstanding women. And um, maybe the idea that if we can get scientists on the money, we can maybe start thinking about more money for science. And so I, I see so many interesting little offshoots and metaphors that can come from this. So I really applaud your efforts. Well, that's absolutely true. And that's kind of what inspired me to this, is that um, when you think about science as a public good, is, how, how, is always how I phrase it, it requires money, and the vast majority is federally funded. And you won't have a next generation, the next culture, thinking that science is some abstract thing. Um, because if you see it on your currency every day, you'll be reminded about it, about its benefits. Um, it's a very subconscious, subliminal thing where you can see that if it's on our currency, it must be important for our country. And if there's a scientist on it with themes, you know, no one's ever going to say, well, that's dumb, or I don't get that, or that's not important. You know, the average person, um, their last science class was a high school biology class. Um, and, you know, some of them, a lot of them, did not find it interesting. And that's fair. Um, and I think this is another opportunity to also share that scientists are real people. Um, you know, the cultural image of a scientist in America is, you know, I, I think it's two things. It's, it's um, the Albert Einstein old man with the crazy hair wearing the lab coat. And the other one is uh, the Big Bang Theory, the skinny nerd at Caltech that can't talk to women. And um, I think that's actually a negative view uh, if you want to get funding for science, if you want to have people to value it, if you want to have people to go into it, um, you need positive images and stories and people. And uh, I think Barbara McClintock is a great example of someone who persevered, who showed a lot of great American values of true grit um, and determination and raw technical skill to be able to make some really great leaps and strides in our fields. And she was the, was she the first woman Nobel Prize winner? She's not the first woman Nobel Prize winner, but she is the only woman to win a Nobel Prize unshared in physiology or medicine. And even crazier, she's the only one to win an award in higher order plants. Um, to win a Nobel Prize in medicine and to do it using plants is a very rare, um, very rare to have that happen. How can something like this really help to soften the entry into discussion about genetics on the public level? 
one opportunity with this project is I have done some communication before in um, communication about genetics and plants, which tends to be a bit controversial, as many of us know. Um, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to take a positive and forward message. Instead of um, always kind of responding to claims or criticism, this would be an opportunity to share a great story about plants and the beauty of using plant genetics to understand the way the world works. And so if people want to support your effort, what are a couple ways they can do that? Sure. So the easiest way is to uh, tweet or share on Facebook or Instagram um, with the hashtag the new 10 and that is uh, the number 10. Um, that's how the Treasury is mainly looking for their public feedback and input. Also, you can find us at barbaraonthebill.com to check out our website to learn more about Barbara McClintock's history, um, a bit about her discoveries, and I some more of the reasons why we have uh, think she'd be a great choice. It goes further than just science when we talk about why she would be a fitting uh, person for the bill that now it really does talk about her not just being a scientist or being a woman, but by being a breakthrough um, person, by representing a change in society that really was needed. And, uh, and it's exciting to hear that. So thank you so much for spending the time to talk to us about it today. Well, I hope everyone can check out our website at barberonthebill.com. And if they're on any kind of social media, um, share their support. And so Barbara on the Bill um, is a great idea, and it's an excellent way for us to raise the awareness of science. And another way you can raise the awareness of science is by sharing the idea of the Talking Biotech podcast with a friend. Uh, Help us spread the word and write an iTunes or Stitcher review on this podcast. I'd really appreciate it. In the next couple weeks, we'll be back to talking about breeding and domestication, as I've had lots of opportunity to talk to people about strawberry breeding, cherry breeding, sugar beet breeding. We'll talk about glyphosate, and we'll have the Cybabe on, talking about what is toxic. What does that really mean? Uh, Lots of really good, compelling interviews coming up, and I'm learning more and more about how to do this every day. One of the other topics will be transparency and how we can all do a little bit better at earning the public's trust. And so much of that is things I've learned in the last few weeks about how I can do what I do better. And so one of the things you'll see from me is an incredible detailed accounting of where every cent to my program comes from. And uh, actually, that's it. You'll just see where it comes from. Who paid for travel? Who bought me an Italian beef sandwich uh, in Chicago at the meeting? And you know, so if you don't want to be part of the public record, don't do me any favors, um, because if you do anything for me, you have now subs- you are now part of that Excel sheet that everyone will see, and I think it's all for the better. I'm looking forward to an unquestionable record of transparency and leading by example. So I'm Kevin Folta. Thank you very much for joining me in another week of Talking Biotech. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. Women like courtesy on a date. I got in trouble once on a date. I didn't open the car door for her. (laughs) 
Instead, I just swam for the surface. (laughs) You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.